as our kids are leaving, um, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, our Frontlines team would love to give you one. So you can just throw up your hand and they will come and find you, bring you a Bible. We're going to be reading in Psalms 96 this morning. And if you should so desire to keep the Bible you get from the Frontlines team, that is your gift to take home with you. We will be beginning right at the start of Psalm 96 in verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord, he made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here. Specifically, I am the pastor of Teaching and Vision for our church family, and it is awesome to have the opportunity to begin a new series this morning called In Guelph as it is in heaven, where Jesus is king. Now, the reason that we're going to be focusing on this over the next few weeks is that within our church family, we talk about in Guelph as it is in heaven a lot. Uh, we say it regularly, whether it be here in our gatherings or in our missional communities, we're praying it regularly. And where that came from was the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. He taught them to pray on this earth as it is in heaven. But something uh, came to me recently, which was, how would we actually know if that was happening? You ever thought about that? Like if we're praying in Guelph as it is in heaven, how would we actually be aware or how would we actually be able to make sense of the fact if Guelph was actually becoming like heaven or if the kingdom of heaven was actually breaking in to this city? What would that actually look like? And so over the next about five weeks, we're going to be talking about different things, different signposts, different signs of what it might look like if Guelph were to break out into our City, And so I hope you'll join us. This in no way is going to be an exhaustive uh, group of five weeks, but it's certainly going to help us as we start and we begin to think about how would we actually know if heaven were to break out in our city here. 
But before we jump into a little introduction video to the series, I want to invite you to do something. Now, some of us in this room are, might feel a little bit uncomfortable with what I'm about to ask you to do, but it is so important that we begin by simply quieting ourselves, closing our eyes, and asking ourselves how we are feeling in this very moment. Uh, if you've been part of our church family for a little bit of time, you'll know that I'm, I'm very open and honest, admitting that I'm in therapy. And part of my therapy has been discovering what it means to feel things and to be honest about how I'm feeling. And God created us feeling beings. He created us emotional beings. Half of our brain is an emotional. Half of it is cognitive. And so before we actually jump into some teaching, some, some heavy stuff, I'm going to ask you to quiet yourself Identify how you're feeling in this moment, and then I'm going to ask you to invite Jesus into that place, because Jesus wants to meet you, and he wants to meet with you in how you're feeling, and he wants to show you that he is the way forward. So simply quiet yourself, close your eyes, ask yourself, how am I feeling in this moment? And as you identify a word, maybe it's a collection of words, what I want you to do is just say, Jesus, meet me in my pain. Meet me in my tiredness. Meet me in my distraction. As we transition, we're going to watch a little video before I come back up to teach. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile. But a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king. And that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel? They mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, 
bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Well, a couple of years ago, I had to say goodbye to something that I deeply loved. Now, some of you might be already thinking like, ooh, what is it? I want you to think about something that you've had to say goodbye to that you deeply loved, okay? So some of us in our minds right now are thinking maybe, maybe a person. Some of us are maybe thinking about a pet. For me, it was my 2010 Toyota Prius. Uh, I have a picture of it right here. This is my 2010 Toyota Prius. Now, I absolutely love this vehicle. My wife, Andrew, we loved this vehicle. Now, if you've never uh, known anything about a Toyota Prius, I'm going to explain a little bit about why this vehicle is so fantastic, okay? And so I have a, a photo, actually, of how a, how a hybrid synergy drive vehicle works. Now, a Toyota Prius, at least the model we had with the hybrid synergy drive, uh, is powered both by gasoline and by an electric 
electric motor. Uh, but the way that the electric motor works and the battery works is that every time you brake your vehicle, the friction of that braking actually charges your battery in your vehicle. And so you only use gasoline in your car when you absolutely need to use it. So every time you pull up to a stoplight, the engine of your vehicle turns off. Every time you start your vehicle, uh, just the lights on your panel goes on. The vehicle doesn't actually start until it absolutely needs to start. And so if you're sitting in traffic, you're not needing to worry about your gas mileage because you're not using any gas. It's absolutely incredible. And, you know, people would actually make fun of me for driving a Toyota Prius. And, and what I would do is I would give them, as I'm doing right now, all of the best reasons that they needed to own a Toyota Prius. If you're a gas mileage person, you might actually know how many liters per 100 kilometers your vehicle gets. Some of you are like, I have no idea. You can find out that information? Yes, you can. Probably in your vehicle, you can find that out. And so in our Toyota Prius, we could get roughly between 3.9 liters per 100 kilometers up to about 4.6 liters per 100 kilometers. It was unbelievable. It would only cost us $35 to fill the tank. And then we would drive about 700 or more kilometers every single tank of gas. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And some of you are like, wow, that sounds amazing. Go buy a Toyota Prius. It's unbelievable. Now, I had to say goodbye to this, and we've since upgraded to a minivan. And I am not getting that gas mileage. It's terrible. It's like 12 liters per 100 kilometers. And so it was, I'm just still so sad. So maybe one day, maybe one day I'll need to get another Toyota Prius. But that's definitely what I would go for if I was going for gas mileage. Now, the reason I tell you this story is to illustrate a point. Because when I had my Toyota Prius, I was talking to people about my gas mileage all the time. It probably got really annoying. But the point that I'm trying to illustrate is that we talk about the things that we love, right? We talk about the things that we love. So I want you to think about the last conversation you had. It might have been this morning. And I want you to think about maybe what was involved in that conversation. Or I want you to remember the last discussion that you had with somebody. What was the things that came up? I had my neighbor over on Thursday night, and he's a big motorcycle guy. And so he talked about his motorcycle. I did not bring up my Toyota Prius in that conversation. Just felt a little bit different. But he talked a lot about motorcycles. And I was asking questions about motorcycle gangs and all these sorts of things. So if you want to know anything about the Hells Angels, find me out here, right? So I'm learning things because we talk about we love. Second point. Is, is that we actually, we talk about the things that we believe work, right? We talk about what we believe works. Now, I'm going to tell you this, but I think we are all salespeople for someone or something, right? We are all salespeople for someone or something. Now, that's someone, as I said, you maybe talk a lot about uh, the people that you're in relationship with, maybe your kids. You know, when somebody has kids, they oftentimes talk a lot about their kids. Uh, this could maybe be a mentor. You know, people talk a lot about a role model or a celebrity that they love. You know, these are some ones that we talk to as we're salespeople. Or maybe it's something, and this could be a point of interest. You know, this could be like you went to the new authentic Mexican restaurant downtown Lorena, and you just had to tell everybody about the fantastic, authentic Mexican food that you had. It could be a TV show that you watch. You know, a lot of our conversations these days are all about television shows that we're watching or movies that we're really enjoying. So we talk about what we love. We talk about what we believe works. But then thirdly, is that we can learn a lot about somebody based on what they talk about. Uh, in our early potlucks, and this is actually probably still one of my favorite questions to ask people as I'm just trying to get to know them, I ask them the question, if you could be a salesperson for anything, 
what would it be? All right, I'm giving it to you now. If you could be a salesperson for anything, what would it be? I remember when I answered this question, it was like, I'd go work for Toyota and I'd sell Toyota Priuses. But the very first time I asked this question, it was a single mom, 40 years old, and she said back to me, the Swiffer wet jet. I was like, the Swiffer wet jet? That's the last thing I thought you'd actually talk about. But she said, yeah, for me, that thing's amazing. I use it all over my house. It gets it so clean. It's the best product out there. And by the end of it, I was like, I got to go buy a Swiffer wet jet. But this is what happens, right? We talk about what we love. We talk about what we believe works. And we can learn a lot about somebody based on the things that they talk about. Well, have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what does God talk a lot about? What does God talk a lot about? I mean, if we're supposed to learn things about people based on the things that they love, which are the things that they talk about, what does God spend the majority of his time talking about, in particular in the scriptures? Now, this is what Christians believe. Christians believe that the Bible is definitely a book and that it's in written form, but that it's also more than a book. They believe that this book has authority because originally it was a spoken word to people, and therefore it's God's spoken word to us. So when we read the scriptures, we are reading it, but initially it was a spoken word. And so for generations and years, people would simply read the scriptures to others and they would listen to them. You know, we're very fortunate that we actually have the Bible, the scriptures to go to and to read. That's a a very privileged thing to actually have. Because many people in our world still don't have that access. But the Bible itself is a spoken word. So when Christians talk about that they can read the Bible and they know what God is saying, it's because Christians believe that in the Bible, we actually are listening to God speak to us. So the question that then we can ask as we go to the Bible is, what does God spend the majority of his time talking about? Now, right off sort of like a 10,000-foot view of the Bible, what does God spend the majority of this time talking about? Well, number one, his grand story. He talks about his grand story. The scriptures can be broken up, as as some of you know this, that we've been using this as a resource lately, in six parts. The beginning is creation. God creates this world. The second tragic reality of the story of humanity is humanity's rebellion against God, Genesis 3. And then God makes a promise to a man named Abraham in Genesis 12, which begins the next section of the story, which is his promise that he will, through Abraham's lineage, bless the earth. We then go forward to the New Testament, God's plan of redemption, in which Jesus comes. God in flesh comes to us. And then Jesus ascends back to heaven and he commissions his followers to be the church, to go and continue declaring the good news of himself to the world, which leads to the church section. And then finally, we look forward to the final restoration where Jesus promises that he will return. So right off the bat, what does God spend the majority of his time talking about? It's his plan. I love what uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her kid's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible about the Bible. I was reading it to Nixon, my oldest, this week. She writes this, The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. 
God spends a huge portion of his time talking about this, of his rescue mission and his plan. And then secondly, what does he talk about? His invitation to partner in his plan of redemption and restoration. Even in the very beginning, in rebellion, God could have said to humanity, his creation, you've messed it up, see you later. But the rest of the scriptures are about God pursuing his people and inviting them back into relationship and into a partnership with him. We see this most prominently in the Old Testament through what are called the covenants. And a covenant is when God makes promises to an individual or to a group of people, and then he asks them to make a commitment back to him. It's called a covenant. And the first covenant we see is God's covenant that he makes with Noah. Some of you are familiar with the story of Noah and his ark. And after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, and he says, I am never going to destroy the earth in this way again. I'm never going to destroy the earth in this way again. Now, what's interesting about that covenant is that there's no commitment on Noah's end of the, Noah's end of the partnership. It's just, this is never going to happen again. The earth is now going to be a reliable place that we can partner together. The second covenant that we read about in the Old Testament, God pursuing people in a partnership and relationship, is God's covenant with a man named Abraham. And God makes the, the promise to Abraham that through his kids, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bless the world. And Abraham's commitment is that he would trust God and follow his commandments. That was God's expectation of Abraham. The third covenant we read about is God's covenant with the children of Israel, his chosen people in the Old Testament. And God's commitment to them is that he would walk alongside them, he would protect them, he would be with them, and their commitment was that they would need to obey his commandment, his way of ruling the earth, his way, his kingdom following him. And then the final covenant we read about in the Old Testament is King David. And God makes the covenant, the commitment to David, that David, if you follow me, there will be a descendant that will come from your lineage, and he will be a king, and he will reign, and all of the world will be blessed. And what's David's commitment? Continue to follow me, to lead justly, teach your kids to follow and lead justly. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you realize that every time God makes a covenant with people, people mess it up, right? God says, I I promise, and people are constantly going, no thanks, God. And if you follow the story, you know this. Like, every step along the way, people are constantly falling short. And once again, God has the option, right? Okay, you want to do it without me? See you later. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Adjustment Bureau, they, they talk about this. There's this group of people that are supposed to oversee quasi-God, and they say that, you know, we, we, we weren't part of organizing the way everything works for a time, but look what you did. We had world wars and da-da-da-da-da. Now, this movie is not describing the scriptures by any way, but I'm simply using it as an illustration to say that God could have said, you know what, you want to do it on your own? Peace out. See you later. But that's not what God talks about. That's not what God does. He continues to pursue us. And so enter himself. God enters stage left. Jesus comes to earth. So what does God talk a lot about? He talks about his grand story. And then he talks about his invitation to partner with humanity. We then read about Jesus, that Jesus is not just a man or a good teacher, but Jesus is also God. John 1.14, we read this, one of the Gospels in the New Testament. 
And the Word became flesh, the Word being the Logos. This is John's way of describing what happens when Jesus comes to earth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you follow my proposition, if Jesus is God, and we want to know what God talks a lot about, what does Jesus then spend a lot of his time talking about? What does Jesus spend most of his time talking about? What do we learn about what he loves based on what he talks about? And what's really interesting in the Gospels is that we have a few summary verses provided in each of them that help us see what Jesus spent his time talking about. If you go in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 4, verse 23, it's going to be on the screen. We read this. This is a summary statement. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. If we then go to Mark's account, his biography of Jesus in 1 verse 14, we read this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can tell by nature these are summary statements, summary verses. And then in Luke, Luke 4, verses 14 to 15, we read this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So if we're to summarize the summary verses that are made by these biographers about Jesus, what does Jesus spend much of his time talking about? Well, the first thing is the gospel of his kingdom. And as we saw in the introductory video, the gospel is the Greek word euangelion, and it literally means good news of his kingdom. Jesus spends an enormous part of his time talking and preaching and proclaiming the good news of his kingdom, that he is coming to rule and to reign. Even in Acts 1 verse 3, which is another way that Luke tells us, after Jesus' resurrection, Acts 1 verse 3, we read this. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What do we learn from that? Jesus wasn't done talking about the kingdom. By the time he was, had died and then come back to life, he was like, I still got 40 days. I'm going to continue to tell them about the kingdom. I'm going to continue to tell them about my rule and reign. Because it's amazing and it's going to be great. So he talks to us and write repeatedly about the gospel of the kingdom but then secondly, what does Jesus spend a majority of his time talking about? His invitation to believe the gospel of the kingdom and then to go and to do the same. If you're following what I'm saying is God the Father and what he talks about talks the exact same way in Jesus the Son. He talks about his plan of redemption and then he invites us to go and to do it. So if God the Father talks a lot about his story, his plan of redemption, Jesus the Son, God himself also. What does that mean that you and I should talk a lot about? Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, very familiar verses to many of us, but let's pay attention again. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know, we witnessed that as a church family last week. We saw five people baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit into their new identities. And then what Jesus says is teaching them. There's a verbal way, there's a proclaiming to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Mark's account of Jesus' words here, in Mark 16, verses 15 to 16, and then verse 20, Jesus says to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Think about those words. Proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And they went out and preached everywhere. John 21, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So in our new identity, if we are followers of Jesus, we go and we proclaim. And then Acts 1, verse 8, Luke's account, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, just for the record, that came true. Because <laughs> we're not in Judea and Samaria. We're now could be described as the ends of the earth. We're in Canada. The good news of Jesus has literally gone around the earth. And we are now sitting here as recipients of this incredible good news. So what does God talk a lot about? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He talks a lot about his plan of redemption his grand story, and then his invitation for us to partner with him in taking the world somewhere, of taking his good news, proclaiming that a king has come to the world. This is fantastic. Like, God isn't like, I'm just going to do it all. He invites us to be participants in building his kingdom. That's great. It's like, God, you want, yeah, I want to partner with you. What are you waiting for? Let's go. He wants us to partner with him. So what's the point? Where am I getting at? Well, very clearly, if heaven is going to come to Guelph, right? If we want to see heaven in Guelph, if heaven is going to come to Guelph, Guelph will be a place where Jesus is made known and the good news of his kingdom is talked about. Where Jesus is made known and the good news of his kingdom is talked about. Now, obviously this morning, I could also mention the fact that we are to bring the gospel in not only our words, as I am talking about, but also in our deeds, and we'll get there over the next coming weeks. But a significant marker of the inbreaking kingdom of God, of Jesus' ministry while he was here on this earth, was proclaiming and teaching the good news of his kingdom. So if we want to see heaven break out in this city of Guelph, Guelph will need to be a place where Jesus is made known, where Jesus is talked about, and his good news, the good news of the gospel, and what this kingdom is life is proclaimed. Like, proclaims the word. In other words, you could say, we just got to make Jesus famous. We got to talk about Jesus. Now, quick point, side note, very important though. Church of the city cannot do this on our own. Okay? Um, it would be enormously narcissistic and wrong of us to say that, you know, Church of the City, we are the ones that are going to make this happen. We can't. We need every follower of Jesus in every nook and cranny of this city to start talking about Jesus. 
We all got to do it. I love um, in the Lausanne Covenant, uh, the Lausanne Covenant, for those of us who maybe aren't familiar, was a product of the first Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization convened by Billy Graham in 1974. Uh, The covenant was then later drafted by a scholar by the name of John Stott. And this is how they define mission. They write this, World evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. I love that. It's not like world evangelization requires church of the city to take the whole gospel to the whole world. It's like all of us. And a marker of the inbreaking kingdom of God will be the fact that we're talking about Jesus. We're proclaiming Jesus. Jesus just keeps coming up in your conversations. Why? Because you love him and you want other people to know about him. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, okay, you're maybe sitting there, you're starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable because you're acknowledging and the Spirit is bringing the conviction in your heart that you don't talk about Jesus very much. I mean, maybe you talk about him a little bit with other people that are also followers of Jesus, but as you think about the places where you live, where you work, where you learn, and where you play, you don't talk about Jesus very much. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're maybe frustrated at this point because you're like, you mean the Christian that brought me here, you're trying to tell them to talk about them more? Then they're just going to be even more annoying. Like, don't talk to me about Jesus. Stop inviting me to be part of your church gathering, to be part of your missional community. Like, leave me alone. Now, that would be a a very hostile (laughs) reality to an invitation from a friend. But if I may, do you not realize that if your friend truly believes that Jesus is the way of salvation to the entire world, that when somebody meets Jesus, he can literally change their lives, that they begin living according to a subversive way of life, as we're going to talk about next week, do you not think that it would make sense that they would want to talk to you about him? Right? Like, do you not think that they would want to actually talk to you about him? They're like, you've got to learn more about Jesus. I, got, I can't stop talking about Jesus because he's that good. Right? So you might be the weirdo, but you're the weirdo that loves Jesus and you believe you actually have good news that the world needs to actually hear. So how do we, like, respond to this? Well, first and foremost, I think we have to cultivate and nurture a love relationship. Like, if we talk about what we love, then you need to nurture the love relationship with Jesus. Right? That's where it begins. If you're not talking about Jesus, I'm going to challenge you to say, do you actually love Jesus. Like, you never have to convince somebody, and some of you will know that as you've gone through your Gospel Fluency Handbooks, which are part of our missional community pilot groups, that Jeff Vanderstelt will challenge you in the book to say, he never has to convince somebody to talk about the things that they love. He never has to train people to talk about the things that I love. Like, I never went to the Toyota dealership and asked a salesperson to tell me how to talk about a Toyota Prius to other people. I just talked about it based on my own experience with it and the value that I saw in it. So, where do we begin? We begin to cultivate our relationship with the king, our relationship with Jesus. Paul, writing to the Roman church in the midst of persecution, writes this in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus. For it is the power of God, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what is the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
The gospel is about God's power to save us. It's not about our power to save us. We can't save ourselves. And it is also for everyone who believes. There's no distinction. You don't have to be a white person. You can be of any background. Isn't that good news? The gospel transcends these ridiculous, ridiculous enormous like categories of people it transcends all that and says come to jesus you know how you can tell if a worldview works or if a way of life works look at the diversity of those who follow it and if you examine christianity across the world it's the most diverse of all the world religions and faith groups because it's about jesus and get me people jesus was not a white guy He was not. I heard someone joke once that, you know, the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed was that he was a white guy in the Middle East. Like, he just was not a white guy. He was not, okay? I remember I was so convicted when I was in university um, because one of my African-American friends had a picture of Jesus around um, his Passover meal with the disciples, and all of Jesus and all the disciples were black. And I was like, that's not right. And I was like, oh my goodness, what have I done? It was so wrong of me. It was so wrong of me. Right? We have to believe as we cultivate and nurture our relationship with Jesus that the gospel is good news. And we can begin by cultivating and nurturing our relationship with Jesus. It's amazing. And then secondly, you you must believe that the gospel actually works. You know, last weekend, as I said, we had five individuals within our church family here at Church of the City that says, I acknowledge Jesus, I love Jesus, I believe the gospel, I believe in the new identity that he's given me. Uh, Two days before, I was up at Joy Bible Camp, which is a camp up in Bancroft, speaking for their youth week. And at the end of the week, eight people were baptized. Uh, eight students said, yes, we're going to follow Jesus and we want to be baptized. And so within last, the span of last weekend, like 13 people, um, you know, an arm's length away from me, I got to witness and see baptized. Like, and I was also really convicted because as I was standing there on that Friday morning as we were about to baptize eight people, I was like, I pray this doesn't get old for me. And, I, and it was getting old. It was like, oh, I ate. And then I was like, Whoa! The miracle of new life, the miracle of the gospel, that Jesus has touched these people's hearts and they've changed their way of life to follow Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. The scripture tells that that the angels are celebrating every time someone comes to know Jesus. May we celebrate as well. So you've got to culture and nurture, cultivate and nurture that relationship. You've got to believe the gospel works. And then finally, very specific, you've got to surround yourself with four people who want to go in the same direction. Now you might say four people. I don't know. Five people. F- three people. But if I just said people, you're like, oh, that's so ambiguous. I'm not going to do it. Four people. You've got to surround yourself with four people that are going to take you in the same direction. I've heard someone say that you are roughly, your worldview is roughly, uh, can be described as the average of five of your closest friends or four of your closest friends. Do the four people closest to you also want to be people that talk about Jesus? If you go through the Gospel Fluency Handbook, which I hope all of you will do or read, read the book, Jeff Vanderstelt will again challenge us to say, if you want to grow in your fluency of what the gospel is, you've got to surround yourself with people that are also trying to talk about the gospel. It's like learning a new language. 
You've got to find other people that are also talking about Jesus because it nurtures you wanting to talk about Jesus more. Friends, if we are going to see the kingdom come, if we're going to see heaven break out in our city, it's going to break out. And one of the signposts that we're going to see is people are talking about Jesus. They're proclaiming how good Jesus is. They're making sense of how much he loves them. We are people that are called to talk about what we love. And if you love Jesus, you will talk about Jesus. If you believe the gospel works, you'll talk about Jesus. You can learn a lot about someone based on what they talk about. What is in your head and what is coming out of your mouth as it relates to what matters a lot to you. Cultivate a love relationship, believe the gospel works, and surround yourself with four people. If you've never believed the good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king, the gospel is as simple that a five-year-old can understand it, and it's so complex as well that the wisest theological scholars will never be able to go to its depths. It's so beautiful. It's so good. Let's talk much about this king. And if you've never committed your life to follow Jesus, if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to respond to the good news of the gospel that God in Christ has come to this earth to redeem and to restore you, to change the way you think so that he would change the way you live, to offer himself. Friends, you cannot get yourself to heaven. We've got to stop thinking that way. That's not the gospel. Heaven needs to come to us. And Jesus has come to us to set us free, to give us life. We're going to take communion together. If you're serving communion, I'd ask you to start coming up to the front here. Communion is going to be delivered to you. We'll start with the bread. We'll move on to the cup. But I'm going to ask that you would hold on to these things as you receive them. If you are a follower of Jesus, you may take. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we would say wait until you've committed your life to Jesus. So after everyone has received, I'll come back up and we'll take it together.